0: Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Today we're looking at how we should understand our bodies. What does it mean to have a body? So before we get into this, let me let me set the scene for you. We've we've done this a little bit, but let me just one aspect Of this city that Paul is writing to, a city that had a reputation for being sexually promiscuous. The Greco-Roman world itself was not known for its chastity or its prudity. It was known for its promiscuity. And amongst the Greco-Roman world, Corinth stood out as a place and a city that was particularly promiscuous. So, to Corinthianize was to be a certain type of person. And it wasn't normally a positive thing to be called a Corinthian type person. We would have other names for people who are promiscuous today. In those days, it was to be a Corinthian. And it was a city that was essentially based on this worship to sex and sexuality. It literally had, the, the city is built, you can Google it later, it's built on two layers. And at the top layer, I mean layers as in, there was a mountain. And uh, at the top of the mountain there was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. And so, literally within the shadow that everyone lived in was this temple. And offerings were made to this goddess, Aphrodite. Jewish priests would make an offering and they would sacrifice animals. At the Corinthian temple, they would make sacrifices through having sex with one another. And some historians estimate that there were some a 1,000 prostitutes or so who would serve the city every day as acts of worship. And these prostitutes had a increased like status. So they were elevated in their status as to who they were. And sex with these prostitutes was something that was viewed as sacred and allowed and permissible and actually beneficial and it was mainstream so we know even in our city there is prostitution but still there is a sense in which it's to one side and it's private and it's something that we don't really bring into the mainstream in Corinth it was very much mainstream you went to work you went to the shops you went to the town centre you went to the temple people knew what that meant it was just part of life. So, it was a highly sexualised culture. I don't know if I'm making anyone feel awkward right now, I'm wishing you hadn't brought your parents to church <laughs> on a day like today. <laughs> Sorry, Geo. We don't always talk about sex in Trinity Church yeah. London, but... Um, but this city was a highly... And I mean, I don't need to explain or you know, go into details, like, to know that we are in a highly sexualised culture. Today, and there was a, a saying that was going around at the time that basically all things are lawful for me. This is why this is how Paul starts off this passage. You see, in most of the translations, it's in quotation marks because it was a saying. All things are lawful for me. This is Paul saying, like reciting. This is what you say in your city, and this is what people were saying in their church because Car- Corinthian practices were inside the church, and there were Christians thinking, "What is the big deal of me going to the temple?" Why is that a problem? Because my body is my body. That they viewed their body as something that they could do whatever they liked with. And they had this idea that what happened with their bodies was a slightly different thing to what happened with their spirits and their souls and their worship. We don't quite say it like this, all things are lawful for me, but we do have our own phrases. We think that whatever happens in the privacy of my own house, in my own room, is my business, it's no one else's business. But you think this is my body, therefore it's my choice. All things are lawful for me. If, as long as there's consent involved, anything's okay. That's like a common axiom of our culture, right? As long as no one gets hurt, there's no, and there's consent involved, then we can do whatever we like. It's my body, my choice. We say exactly the same things as the Corinthians. And it would be a mistake for us as the church to think that that's something that happens out in London and doesn't happen in our hearts. Because actually, the reality is, that anything that happens in London finds its way into our hearts and our lives and our attitudes, whether we like it or not. So we have to be aware of this kind of attitude that says, "Actually, this is my, this is myself, my body. Why does it matter what the Bible, or the church, or the pastor says? Because this is, and why does it even matter? I think a lot of Christians quietly wonder, like. Why, why does it really matter what happens with my body? Why Why is the Bible fussed about it? Why is the Bible fussed that sex only happens between a man and a woman within marriage? Why, why is the Bible fussed that sexual activity outside of that is actually harmful? Anyone ever, is it why, is the church maybe bigoted that we have this kind of tight view on how we should use our... Sexuality. Everyone wondered that? I wonder it quietly sometimes. Think, are we bigoted? Because the the world thinks we're bigoted. Sometimes like are we? Is this right? And it's sometimes right to ask these kinds of questions as to how should we use our body and why does the Bible ask us to use our bodies like it does. So what I want to do today is really help build a framework for for why the Bible places sex within the marriage of one man and one woman and why it doesn't just allow it to be a a free-for-all why does it place it within these confines and not like the Corinthians say, hey all things are lawful for me so as long as there's not consent, as long as no one's hurt you can just go and do whatever you like What? Well, why is this because I mean the world is Frustrated would be nice way of putting it, and angered would be the more correct way of putting it. The, the world doesn't like the sexual ethic that the church puts forward. And the kind of rhetoric from the world is, the church needs to get with the program. It's the 21st century now, it's 2023, and the church is always dragging its feet on these ethical matters. And so the church needs to be, and I think very much the world feels like its job is to draw the church into the 21st century, feeling frustrated that the church on the whole does not agree with the new views on sexual ethics. But the problem is, is not that we're just dragging our feet on these issues and actually we're just stuck in the muds and traditionalists and if we were just less conservative we might actually get pulled along with what is really we know about humanity today, the reality is the world looks at ethics from within a completely different framework to that which the church looks at ethics. So the world is arguing for something from a framework within which there is no God there is no purpose, therefore, to creation. There is no end of creation. And therefore, we are left to our own devices to essentially make up morality on ourselves. And if that was the case, then sure, like we just make it up, and if it feels good, we go and do it. But Christians, we live within a completely different framework, within which there is a God who creates us and makes things, and life is given a purpose and our bodies are given for purpose, and there is an end to all things. And so this framework is completely different, and therefore, our pops. Different ethics. And so what we need to do as Christians is rather than just needle people and say, that's bad, that's good, that's bad, that's good, rather than just wagging our finger at each other in the world, we actually need to erect and build the framework within which we're in so that that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does that make sense? That's what I realize I saying. Does that make sense to each other? Like the most simple statements now, like go to the shop. does that make sense? Does that makes sense? It's the habit I've got now. But then, we, we have to not just know what to do and not what not to do, we need to know the why. Why should I? And I think our young people and our teenagers, they're wondering these questions. i wonder it sometimes, why? Like it, and we need to have answers to say, like, it's not just, that's bad, don't do it. Like, why is it bad? And so what Paul does, actually, is just, he only says to do two things in this passage. The rest is him arguing and kind of building out this framework for why. Why should we use our bodies in this chaste kind of way between one man and one woman? What's the reasoning for that? Because the people in Corinth, even the Christians were like, I don't know if that doesn't really seem like a plausible way of doing life. And yet Paul answers this and helps us. So I've got four things to say. This isn't the complete answer. This isn't the complete framework. This is just what Paul is saying. In this passage Amen So are we, are we up for this Hand us up for it Alright We're in There are four things I want to say About our bodies And what it means for us As we live in London And the first thing is this That our bodies And our souls Are one Not separate That we're not people Who happen to have a body But our body is us And we cannot separate our inner life, and our outer life. Because there is this view that permeates that there is my spiritual self, and then there is my physical self. And these two things can be slightly separated. Why even today, someone can say, who was born a male, and has male biology, can say, but I am not a man, I'm a woman, in a man's body, So they are separating the body from the inner person and a lot of people say, that makes sense. It's this idea that actually my inner person and my outer person can be treated slightly separately. And we're living really in the culmination of generations of hundreds and hundreds of years of layers of societal thinking that has, has brought us to this point where we can divorce our inner self from our bodies and therefore our sensuality. Because the Greeks, they thought the Greek philosophy that your mind is really separate to your bodies and really like our minds and what happens in here is trapped in our bodies. Eastern philosophy does the same, that your bodies is like just kind of a cage for your soul and if you could work into particular positions or meditations then you could kind of free your soul from this body that we have the romantics in the West, they elevated and highlighted the, our emotions and our feelings as to such a high degree that actually what you did with your body was like slightly immaterial. And then we had the sexual revolution with the pill and abortion rights, which meant that we're actually in a position now to have what we do with our bodies over there as a separate thing to the rest of our life and commitments and everything else that we want to be involved with. Because I can do things now with my body. And we have the internet and hookup culture and apps and everything like this now which allows us essentially to live these anonymous lives, doing things with our bodies, thinking that it doesn't affect our souls. And this manifests itself in all sorts of funny ways. We think we have quite a high view of the body because we have magazine covers with people with amazing bodies on the front and we're celebrating and we're we're body positive. But in a funny kind of way, I think we actually have quite a low view of the human body that basically not that people tend to say it like this but my body is like a an accessory that i carry around with me that i shape and change to be what i want and how i feel inside and that might be to do with my gender and i might want to move and have a different gender in my body to express something different but it even goes to like the explosion of gym culture and these magazines with people amazing bodies who are like, you know, like, I can never achieve this. We well, can't without drugs anyway. But, you know, like, we're going to celebrate this, but it's this idea that, no, we don't like our bodies as they are, we want our bodies to look like this. We don't accept them as they are, so we spend all this money and time trying to achieve these bodies that are, like, unattainable, because actually we don't appreciate what we've got. There's this whole, like, I mean, there's a shop at the end of our road, it's called doll face, or dolly face, doll face aesthetics. It's a beauty shop, you know, see, women can have their faces look more and more like a a doll. And, I mean, it's like, it's like, apocalyptic stuff in my mind. I mean, it's this idea that I don't accept who I am, so I'm going to just accessorise my body and turn it into a different kind of thing that is not... So we think it's elevating and celebrating, but that's this idea I don't... And Christians, we separate our bodies from our souls all the time in the, in the funniest kind of ways. Can I talk about some of the funny ways? All right. I mean, funny. You know, like, funny in an English idiom is like just a blanket word for like, it's not really funny, but I'm trying to, like, be nice. And uh, um, I think we do it in church life a lot of the time. And, you know, this, this idea that if I don't feel like singing, if I don't feel like putting my hands up in the air, if I don't feel like going to the prayer meeting, if I don't feel like going to church, then it doesn't really matter, because I've got Spotify, got better proofs on YouTube anyway, so I'll just stay at home and just do church from there, because we think that what we do with our body doesn't actually matter. And I'm not saying you have to be every church meeting because I know there's circumstances in life happens. But it's this idea that actually if I don't, if I don't feel like it, I'm, I, I won't use my body to express worship to the Lord. I don't feel it today. Because we've, we've separated it. Not knowing that what we do with our body has impacts on our soul and what happens in our soul has impacts on our body. Amen. C.S. Lewis said that our body and our soul live so close together that they, they catch one another's diseases. So if, if your soul is sick with sin and grief, it will get manifested in your body. You will experience, David talks about it, doesn't he? When he didn't confess sin, and he was trying to keep sin in his soul and his heart, he says, my bones were aching. Because what happened in his soul was being manifest in his body. When David says in Psalm 63 that he longs for the Lord, he says, my spirit, my soul yearns for the Lord, and my flesh faints for him. So what happens in our heart, get reflected in our body. Over the years, um, we kind of accumulate, really, I think, in our physical self and in our faces, what's been happening in our past. Because we we, we think we hide what's going on inside. But over time, if you've been steeped in bitterness and envy and jealousy for decades and decades, you know some people I would imagine who you think, I, I think I can see that in that person. And you've probably met people equally who have been steeped in the joy of the Lord. And when you meet these people in old age, it is like their faces like shining and radiant and you, even looking at them, there is a sense of peace about who they are. Because their bodies is reflecting their souls. Amen? So, our souls and our bodies are one. So we can't divorce what happens on a Saturday from what happens on a Sunday. We can't divorce what happens in the bedroom from what happens in church because we are one. Amen? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Our bodies will be resurrected one day. This is what he says in verse 13. He says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. So just as Christ was raised in his body, so we too will be raised in our body one day. Let me just backtrack and just tell us, because a lot of us go through moments in life where we feel... Discomfort in our own skin. Anyone have that experience? Just moments of feeling like, I don't know, this body does not seem to really serve me right or do me right. And Discomfort in our bodies is actually a relatively common thing. And we all go through ways of it at various times of life and all sorts of things for all sorts of reasons. And there is a reason for that, because when we sinned, when we walked away from God, because our souls and our bodies are intertwined and together, it wasn't just our emotions and our souls that felt, it was our physical bodies as well. So when we walked away from God, our bodies became fractured and broken, and also the world around us became fractured and broken. Everything that we live in, because we are one, got broken. And so when Christ to exist in, in perfect glory as a spirit being, the eternal God, on a throne with his father, when he chooses to come down in the, in, into humanity, he doesn't just come down as a ghost-like spirit person floating around because he doesn't want to touch our icky-like flesh. What does he do? He comes down and he takes on broken humanity in himself. He adds humanity to himself so that he walks around as the God-man, 100% spirit, 100% flesh, together, and he is crucified in his body so that Peter can say that in his body, that's where he took our sin. Actually broken, finally, taking on hell itself so that all of our sin might be on his body and he was broken for us. And then three days later we're told He gets resurrected from the dead Hallelujah This is good news And if I were Jesus I would be thinking This is my opportunity To leave that icky, fleshy body thing behind Like I could be resurrected I can go back to the Father now And yet what does Jesus choose to do When he gets resurrected from the dead He chooses to have his body raised with him because our bodies are not a temporary thing just to be discarded one day of death. They are eternal carriers of who we are and Jesus gets raised from the dead physically so that when he gets ascended to the right hand of God the Father, he sits down on the throne as a five foot, we don't know, maybe six foot. Have you ever thought that you might be like four foot ten? <laughs> <laughs> ever thought that? Like Jesus today is in the body. Have you ever thought that you might get to Meet Jesus and he he might be shorter than you. I'm not being like irreligious here. This is quite a possibility because apparently they were shorter in those days. So Matt will go to meet Jesus and give him a hug and he'll be like, Jesus, like, <laughs> like we have these weird ideas that he's like, he's all it's high up there when we meet him, he's in the flesh. Right now he is a brown-skinned Middle Eastern man, five foot something we don't know. At the right hand of God the Father. He is in his body right now. It's good news for our bodies, which means that when we get raised with him in the same way, it will be us. So I'll recognize Edward, I'll recognize you you will recognize me, it will be glorified. It doesn't mean that we all look like Brad Pitt or whoever it is. It's us. You and me. With all of our, just us-ness, but glorious. So much so that angels would be tempted to worship us. That's how beautiful and wonderful we are going to be. But it's our bodies which means that we, we have hope. Those moments where you feel uncomfortable in your body, there is hope because one day there will be no discomfort, all the effects of the fall will be gone. And we treat our bodies well with respect because they're eternal when we're with Christ because they're going to be resurrected with him. So that's the second thing. We're going to be resurrected one day. The third thing is this, and this is slightly bonkers, but our bodies are in a relationship with Jesus. Let me just read verse 15 for us. 15 hours. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, sometimes in the New Testament, when he talks about being members of Christ, he's using this analogy of Christ's body. And Christ is a head, and we are like his, his body. In this case, he is talking about being United in a marriage with Jesus. That we are members one of another with Christ as a husband is united with his wife and a wife with her husband. This is the analogy he's using. That our bodies are actually in a marriage relationship with Jesus. And so he says, do you, do you not know this? Shall I then take the members of Christ And make them members of a prostitute. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's saying this incredible thing that when we become Christians... It's not just that we have like a friendship relationship with Jesus, which is what we often think. I'm in a relationship with Jesus, like I meet him for a coffee, we catch up, I tell him what's going on, he says he loves me, and then I carry on with the rest of my life. He says, no, actually, you are married to him. That we are the bride of Christ, men and women, and he is our husband. And when we said yes to Jesus, We were saying yes to the proposal of Christ to come into him and to be loved by him and to be cared by him and to be honoured by him so that we might flourish. This is the storyline of the whole Bible. This is what Isaiah prophesies about the day when the Lord comes. And he says this, and it's it's incredible language. He says in Isaiah 62 about the Lord with his people. He says, You shall know nor be turned forsaken. And your land shall no longer be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, or My delight is in her. And your land will be called married, for the Lord delights in you, and your husband shall be married. For who's a husband? God. Be married to who? Us. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isn't that amazing? I mean, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. Think on these things for a moment. Think of the emotions. Think of the focus. Nothing else matters on that moment, in that day. And this is the emotion that God has towards us. Because we are married, we are united to him. Marriage wasn't invented by society because at a prudish time in history, we decided that you shouldn't really sleep around. It's better just to have one husband or one wife. Marriage was invented by God to reflect his first marriage with us, his people. Our marriages today are only faint, imperfect, sinful reflections of the beautiful, eternal, perfect marriage of God with us, his people. Someone asked this question, was why why isn't Jesus married when he came? It's quite a common thing for Jewish men to be. I don't know if you ever thought about that. There are conspiracy theorists who think that he was married. And then there is a secret line of kind of Jesus descendants who are living in Paris today, controlling the earth and all the finance of the world. Um, It's kind of fun reading if you like novels and things like that. But he wasn't married. Why, Why didn't Jesus get married? One answer, and maybe the most important answer, was that Jesus didn't get married because he actually was already engaged to you and me. And he was coming for you and me. And when he came to earth, he was coming to see his bride come alive for him. To die for his bride. To win his bride to himself. So that he could one day enjoy the eternal marriage of the wedding supper of the man with us. Probably why he's not married, because he's got one bride, and church. We're married, which means logically then, if we are married with Jesus, then we don't do whatever we want with our bodies. Just like if we're married to a husband or to a wife, we're not free to do whatever we want with whoever we want. Even in a society says that you can kind of do whatever you want with your body, recognises that actually things so we don't so logically it doesn't make sense and then do anything that we like because actually we're responsible to our spouse to our God husband and also emotionally if we know that God loves us with an eternal infinite fiery like jealousy a Godly <coughs> jealousy for us and has already moved heaven and earth to love us and to give us all things that we can ever desire and one day bring us to glory if we know in our hearts that we are loved by the judge of the world by, by God why would we then go searching for small tiny sinful bits of love that will never fill our hearts up anyway how how do we fight temptation because sexual temptation is And it will bombard us every single day in this culture. Yeah, we put some guardrails and things in place, like things that are helpful. Sure, we need to do that. But the first and most important thing we need to do is remind our souls that I'm already married to God and He's moved heaven and earth for me, and I'm going to inherit all things. I'm loved by Him. If my heart is so full of the love of God that I'm overflowing, The temptation to try and fill my heart will be gone because I don't need these trinkets, small, finite, simple things that never fill my heart anyway and leave me feeling guilty and full of shame because I've got God's love in my heart. The Christian reminds ourselves, I'm loved by God. He's got me. Amen? Amen. Amen. Fourth thing is this, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. This is what he says in verse 19. He says, uh, well do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. And like we, we this doesn't mean, you know, I don't eat carbs after 8pm because my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't eat guacamole because there's too much fat in it. Like be healthy. It's a really good thing to be healthy. But that's not what Paul that's not why Paul uses. It's not like a a great verse for being healthy. This is about fighting sexual temptation and using our bodies. And it's this crazy idea that even to this day, temples are reverenced. In the Old Testament, the temple was reverenced as the place where God dwelt. And when God came in His glory, we're told that the, temp- the priest couldn't even stand. They would be on their faces because the presence of the God was so powerful and almighty. All came upon them and all they could do was hide their faces and hide their eyes and fall on the floor because of the almighty presence of God. People today going to the Jewish temple and going to the Wailing Wall reverencing this temple and yet what Paul says is that the true temple as offensive as this might sound to some the true temple is actually My body and your body when you say yes to Jesus. That God's presence now lives literally in my body. By the Holy Spirit. So that you are now a walking, talking, breathing, diaphragm pulling temple of the Holy Spirit. So that wherever you go you are carrying the Holy Spirit with you. We're told there are moments in the Old Testament where because someone treated the presence of God wrong, that they died on the spot. Because they mistreated or disrespected the presence of God in an ark. And yet here we are with the living Holy Spirit in our bodies. And what does that mean for how we use our bodies? It means we are to reverence the Lord who has come into us and now lives within us we are never alone we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us which means I mean I grew up as a teenager it's a silly thing to say but you know I was once a teenager and I was once part part of Christian youth groups and you know sometimes in Christian youth groups I don't know why we just talk about teenagers and sexual temptation because if I asked us to put our hand up, and well, I won't, you can breathe. Yeah. We would all put our, you know, we'd all acknowledge this is real for everyone at every stage of life. But there's this idea like, you know, don't look on the computer because Jesus is watching you. <laughs> there was this like idea that basically what the youth pastor had up his sleeves to stop teenagers from doing naughty things was like, Jesus can see you. Which honestly, I don't think, will fill you with guilt and shame, but will fill you with no power to actually live a different life. You just carry on the same, feeling more guilty because Jesus is watching you. We have something so much better. Sure, he's watching us, but we're told that there's no condemnation. So it's not like a a schoolmaster trying to police sin in our bedrooms. He lives within us to compel us and to drive us to God our Father who loves us and fills us with power. He lives within us. He's not just watching us, there is something in us to live by. Amen? So we are one with our bodies. Our bodies will one day be resurrected. We are in a relationship already with Jesus. So we're not free. Even if we're single, even if we're married, we're not free. We're in a relationship with Jesus if we're Christians. And the Holy Spirit lives within us as his temple. What do we do with this knowledge? Paul says two things, and only two quick things in this passage. The rest is building reasons why. But in verse 18, he says this, flee from sexual immorality. On the basis of this, if this is true about our bodies, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. The words here for sexual immorality is just one word, it's porneum. Say it again, you realise how that comes into our culture with pornography. But it's not just about what is looked at on a computer. In the New Testament, pornea is really anything that happens sexually outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. It's like quite a broad definition of what is sexual sin. And Paul says, flee from this. So church, Trinity Church London, we are people who flee from sexual immorality, amen. Let me give you one, like, pastoral bit of advice. Fleeing from sexual immorality, I think the first thing to do is to flee from the temptation rather than the actual sin. Because I think a lot of people get trapped in cycles of sexual sin because they keep going back to the same sources of temptation and wondering why they keep falling into sin. So if you keep hanging around with a certain person and you know that you keep falling into sin, rather than just wondering, why do I keep falling for sexual immorality? Look at the source of temptation and wonder, how do I have to put boundaries in place with this person? If social media keeps leading you to sexual immorality and lust, which it is designed to do, is so all aware of if that causes you to sin, the first step is to deal with the source of temptation so deal with the social media aspect first otherwise you just keep going around the cycles. am I making sense? to use that phrase again otherwise we get Jesus said, like, if something causes you to sin like pluck out your eye or chop off your hand there are some people in previous church histories who literally chopped off their genitals because they took that word so seriously. I think, for some of us, deleting our Instagram account feels like more severe than chopping a hand off. I think some people like, I would rather chop off my hands than delete my Instagram account because I don't know if I can breathe without my Instagram. Like, how do I stay connected? And yet Jesus says, like, that's, that's, if you actually want to flee from sexual immorality, you deal with the sources of temptation. So I don't know what that means for you, with a person, with an app, with a thing, with a computer, whatever it might be, but deal with the temptation first, rather than going round in cycles and wondering, why do I keep doing It might just be because you keep going back to the same thing. Amen? I think I've made the point long enough. But we flee sexual immorality, and by so doing, he says, secondly, We glorify God in our bodies. At the very end, verse 20. You were bought with a price, church, so glorify God in your body. Our vision is to see God's glory known across London and the nations. This starts with us. And what happens in private is known to the Lord and the heavenly realms. And you and I can glorify God through our bodies when people are watching, and when nobody's watching, and God is honoured, and the heavenly realms pay attention to what is happening. It's an it's an incredible possibility for us. And so the call for us as a church, and maybe if the band could come back up, the call for us as a church is to live a countercultural life in the middle of a highly centralised culture. In the, mid- in the middle of a city that says the way that you are to receive pleasure and fun and fulfillment in your life is through this kind of libertarian living, we are, as Christians are called to live this completely countercultural life that displays the fact that God is more satisfying and better to us than any other physical activity that we could partake in in this life. And we're to display that in how we go about our lives. And in so doing, we can shine the light and the glory and the worth of Jesus. Amen.